Um, I, I would really love to be able to kind of scratch where the itch is. So uh, throughout the time, uh, I, I'm going to ask if there are questions or comments, and we'll do so again, I think, at the end of this session. But if there's anything that anybody wants to ask about or make a comment about, uh, just at this point, I really don't want to hydroplane over uh, some of the real issues. So anybody have a question or comment they want to make coming out of what we talked about? Was that helpful to you? I hope it, I would hope it was helpful. Okay? All right. Yes? Do the rabble recognize themselves as rabble? No, they, they, they think they're elders. They think they're... Uh, <laughs> Uh, they think they're leaders. That's the that's the truth. Uh, anybody else? Pardon me. Okay. I love this story. I'm going to uh, read it to you. It comes from the book I, I highly recommend, "Evangelism Outside the Box" by Rick Richardson. Rick Richardson. It's an inner varsity. Uh, book, Evangelism Outside the Box. But in the introduction to that book, he tells this story, and I love this story. He says, when he was six years old, uh, I'll read it in the first person as written. When I was six years old, I got an uncomfortable picture, unforgettable picture of God's heart. My dad was in the military stationed in North Carolina. Across from our family's home lived a family also in the military. We had three boys. They had three girls. Each Friday in warm weather, our moms drove the six kids an hour drive to the beach where we spent the day building sandcastles and wading in the waves. Then we would pile back in the big, ugly, green station wagon and return home. On one of these trips back home, with us in the middle of the 15th verse of a song about Noah's arky arky and the animals that came in by twosies twosies, Allison, the youngest girl, asked where Chris was. Chris was my youngest brother, three years old. He was a trickster, so we thought he must be hiding somewhere in the car. <clears throat> we looked under the beach blankets. We looked in the tire well. We searched the back of the car. No Chris. He must still be at the beach. Mom, Chris isn't here, I reported. What? My mother responded. At that moment, I began the ride of my life. My mother hit the brake with magnum force. She spun that big, ugly green station wagon in a 180-degree turn, tires screeching. Then she put the pedal to the metal. We had What had been a 30-minute trip from the beach took us 15 minutes going back. I think we hit 100 miles per hour, and we only stayed that low because it was an old car and just wouldn't go any faster. At the beach, we piled out and ran back through the archway onto the sand. We ran from guard station to guard station. At the very last one, my mother saw Chris, and Chris saw my mother. They called out to each other. They ran toward each other, and then it was like a scene from a movie. My mom caught Chris in her arms and twirled him, hugged him, laughing and crying all at the same time. Chris was lost. My mother braved the curves of North Carolina roads, and it felt like risked all of our lives to find him. But that passionate mother love for her lost child is only a glimpse of the passion of God for those who are lost and don't know Jesus. He wants to turn the big, ugly, green station wagon, maybe an appropriate analogy for our church this morning, around to race wherever these lost and hurting people can be found 
but he's letting us drive. We're at the steering wheel of the green station wagon. If we're happy with who we are, who's already in the car and who is not, we can continue on home singing our fun travel songs. In our church, the Desert Vineyard, the great big ugly green station wagon, you know, what we've tried to do is create a culture of accessibility and engagement. That's been our primary aim. We believe that God is indeed leading people with cords of loving kindness, that he actually does use kindness, patience, and tolerance to bring people to repentance, and that if we simply cooperate with him in every way that we know how, that it's really possible for us to be part of the harvest, to be actually engaged in and community with people who are finding Christ. And for me, again, I can, you know, I, I do want to, to have dialogue so that I could try to make those adjustments to your situation. But for me, what has been absolutely essential in that process is choosing a model, choosing a, a model of what we're trying to build and reach for. We all know that passage, you know, Matthew's Gospel, where Jesus talks about building the church. And he does so in such an interesting setting, you know, such an important kind of context where he's saying, who do people say that I am, right? That's the question. Who are people saying that I am? Some say John the Baptist. Some say you're Elijah, you know, like here's all these different opinions about Jesus. And then he says, who are you saying that I am? And Peter speaks up for the rest, and, you know, we say that you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus responds to that and said, you know, Peter, you know, you're on this rock, I'm going to build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And that passage, you know, particularly pointing at Peter, there's great dispute, is there not, and how that's interpreted. You know, some want to interpret that as a very kind of personal, foundational Peter's, you know, primary apostle, and the church is going to be built on that foundation of succession. And others, Protestants, we believe that it's the confession. It's the, this witness to Christ that is the foundation of the church. And truth is probably, uh, and again, I, I wouldn't be one that would hold to that succession or that kind of hierarchical authority, but the church is built on the personal witness of the apostles. Uh, that's foundational in the Bible. And, and it's also built on the personal witness of Jesus' followers today. That that's the, the confession and witness of people. That's what the church is built on. That's what Jesus is committing to build. And so that personal witness and confession of, of knowing Christ, of trusting in him, of who he is and what he's done, that's what we have to connect with other people. That's the thing that has to happen. And in the, the, the mix-up of it, you know, it's like, okay, well, we can, we can plan this kind of, you know, uh, approach to the community or that approach to the community. And, and, and my argument to you today would be the church by its very nature is meant to be engaged and accessible to people who are searching. We have no way of controlling when people are hungry. We have no way of thinking that, well, if we have a visitor Sunday one week, that's when, you know, you know what, you know what happens, right? You guys all know, ladies, you know that, that what triggers people in terms of spiritual hunger is often a combination of crisis in their life. 
that's life isn't working or there's an experience of emptiness or a real tragedy or, or something is going on that's motivating someone who hasn't previously kind of come to a conclusion to look for one. And those things are not predictable. So if the church is going to be in part of that, I mean, we're not very successful at simply kind of hard, cold selling people who have no interest. You know, I have no interest in preaching on the street corner. I don't see any fruit of that. Maybe I could be convinced and I would try it if I thought there was any chance. But I don't see that simply kind of making a witness statement to people who are uninterested is any has any particular kind of fruit to it. But people who are questioning, people who are hungry, people who are searching for some answer in their life, that then they would connect with a credible, personal, authentic witness, that has power to it, to change the future, to change destiny. So how do we navigate this, that this foundation of who we are and what Jesus is building, uh, this personal confession and witness, that this is truly accessible and engaged with the community that we live in. To me, the the first answer to that is model. And and if you've uh, heard me talk about this before, I apologize, but I, I won't let go of the pedal of this because I believe that it's just too important. And I believe that some of the frustration that we experience in trying to grow the church is because we're trying to grow the wrong model, that we don't really understand uh, what the church can be, at least what its potential to be is. So uh, I'm going to uh, talk about the biblical models of being God's people. There are three of them uh, that are in the scripture that we can choose from. And uh, people look at them differently, but essentially those three models are there's a temple, tabernacle model, there's a synagogue model of being God's people, and then there's this mysterious emerging church model of being God's people. So three models, and models are so powerful. To me, uh, models are more powerful than messages, particularly for trying to build something. Because, like for me, at least this is the way it works for me, I get something from Ikea, that my some piece of furniture that my kids need, and yeah, there's instructions, that's really nice, but I'm looking at the picture on the box. Like in terms of recreating that, I want to see it. And so for church life, so oftentimes... It's, it's part of what I think makes a fellowship like New Wine so important, where you're connecting together and, and experimenting is happening and models are emerging and, and kind of real fruit is being displayed and the ability to kind of see it and, and look at it and wonder, is that a reproducible model? Is that something that I can, you know, kind of incorporate or adapt? That is very, very powerful in terms of influence. The, the models I'm going to talk about are really a biblical kind of, of way, but, but again, those biblical ways of being the church or being a gathering of God's people, you know, they have expression in a contemporary way. And, and I'm, before I get into this, I'm going to tell you something that's fascinated me. I was with Bill Hybels a couple of weeks ago with a small group of other pastors, and we were talking about some different issues. But what one of the things that came up, we were talking about transitions. We were talking about uh, uh, succession, turning over churches uh, to the next generation or next kind of 
leaders. And uh, so that discussion somehow led into a, a discussion of regret, of regret. And I remember being with John Wimber at the, at the end of his life, and he was speaking to, to a group of us and saying that his biggest regret as a leader is that the vineyard that he created and kind of led did not turn out to be more evangelistic than he wanted that that was his biggest regret, that we weren't more evangelistic than he thought that we would be. And Bill Hybel said in this meeting, unrelated to what John had said, he said his biggest regret at this point in his ministry was he took the gas off of evangelism. He put his, full, put his foot back from evangelism. He said, I, I should have never, ever done that. Because now, trying to push my foot back down again, it is really, really hard. But he said, but I'm determined to do it. But that's my biggest regret. It's interesting to me that at the end of the day, end of ministry, you could build great things, you could have a great ministry, there could be lots of people involved, but some of the more significant leaders that I have known have really expressed the thing that I, I regret is that somehow this wasn't all more evangelistic. I'm going to suggest to you that the church is a model an effective model that's whole reason for existence is to be evangelistic. Let's start with the, the temple one. I'm going to write some things down on there. Hopefully they'll be on the screen as well, so this will be easier. But we're going to talk first about the Old Testament model of a temple, tabernacle. Okay? And this model is is largely in my so This is my argument. I'm, going to, I'm only going to offer it to you. But it is largely a, a centralizing and consolidating model. It was meant to, uh, you know, help forge Israel's identity as God's people and, and their practice as God's people. It's a centralizing, consolidating model. It, it's really, it, it's whole design is to be a, a place for God, literally a, a palace for God. It's his, it's his palace uh, in, in the, among the people. It's a, a, a unifying national marker. It is a, a, it's a symbol, if you will, of God is with us as a people. As God is with us as a nation, as a, as a people... It's a unifying symbol of that. It has a culture of holiness. You know, there are special objects and vessels. It's a special place. It's served by special people and special clothes. It has a, a culture of holiness, of separation, of being especially uh, dedicated to God. It is the experience... Uh, of spiritual distance. I mean, again, even the design of it is meant to emphasize that you are distant from God who is holy. You approach him, you know, the, the segmeg, segmented parts of the temple from the courtyard to the holy, to the most holy place. So it, it is all an experience that God is, is distant from you and there's a barrier between you and God. It's centered on sacrifice. That's its function, is trying to bridge this distance or, or appease God's wrath through sacrifice. I always, 
I have to laugh. I'm, I'm, I'm not as sanctified as I want to be, but I'm always uh, somewhat amused by kind of the romanticized pictures of the temple. You know, you see little models people make, and, and it all looks so clean and nice and romantic and little, you know, and you know the, the temple in its function had rivers of blood, rivers of blood. The, the system that conducted the blood away. Can you, have you ever been around blood that is aging and decaying? And It's a horrible smell. It's the smell of death. The temple was surrounded in a smell of death, and it ran with rivers of blood. The, the romantic version that we have of kind of the temple as some place of this wonderful celebration and it's really a distort again a nostalgic kind of view of of what the model actually was it's served by a hierarchy of priests you know there's a a ranking order and with a chief priests being at the top the chief priest and and then there's a hierarchy, but again, it's special people as intermediaries between the community and God. And, and all of this uh, leads me to conclude that its primary goal, its primary goal is preparation. It's preparing people, the people to be God's people, to be a holy nation, that kind of thing, to, to their, for their sin to be covered. And the whole sacrificial system really had, to me, one point, and that is that we would learn that sin brings death. That's something we never learn. It's like we just do not believe it, that sin brings death. And, and the whole sacrificial system is a reinforcing, visceral kind of life lesson that sin brings death, but the primary goal is the preparation of the people to be God's people, and and that's how the temple worked. The second model is the synagogue, which emerges after the destruction of the temple um, by the Babylonians and in exile, so it's a post-exilic model uh, of being God's people, exilic, that's with an X, uh, model the synagogue emerges in exile it's primarily a, a, a model of of contraction and survival in exile how how are the people going to still be God's people? How are they going to? How are any of the traditions uh, going to be maintained and preserved and passed on? And and so a synagogue model is a model of contraction. How to be God's people in much smaller kind of communities, smaller pockets, dispersed, and, and how to survive. It, it is primarily a. Uh, a, a expression, kind of a unifying expression of that we are still here. You know, it's not a, no longer a national marker. The synagogue is not a national marker. It's a, a local marker of, of we are still here. We, the, you know, the Jewish community, the people of Israel are still here in this, even in this hostile 
environment. Uh, it's a culture of law, not of holiness so much as of law. The commands and requirements of righteousness, the details of what it means to to be a person that is in covenant relationship with God through the law. It's an experience in the synagogue of spiritual discipline, not distance, but discipline. The law is being taught and, and administered and and you are being disciplined by both its instruction and, of course, by correction. It's centered on Sabbath observance. To this day, you know, uh, uh, the Jewish community in Los Angeles is is a significant community, and there is a movement within Judaism, the Chabad, the Lubavitch movement, that seeks to evangelize backslidden Jews. Uh, uh, I look Jewish enough that I'm often approached by them. Uh, uh, I'm always followed in Israel when we're there uh, because they're very strong in Jerusalem in particular, and, and they're always looking for people, and I've had so many conversations with them where, no, someone's Jewish in your family, you know, like, but their primary goal is to evangelize Jews back to to conservative Orthodox Judaism, and they drive a a, a, a truck around Santa Monica sometimes that has on the back of it, the bed of the truck is a giant menorah, and their primary aim is to get Jews back to observing the Sabbath and lighting the candles and and that's the primary aim. That remains the center of kind of, if we simply obey the Sabbath enough, then the Messiah will come. That if we simply, that there, that's the core of it. And so in, within the Sabbath, it is this uh, desire to be centered on, I mean, within the synagogue, the centering is on the Sabbath. It's not served by a hierarchy of priests. It's served by a rabbi, teacher, And its primary end goal is preservation. It is a life raft for preserving the remnant and hopefully preserving the passing on of the faith to their children. Now, I'm going to say something offensive, and that is that I believe that many churches are temples that that they may not obviously the the obvious link would be there was a conscious decision to to choose this model within uh, kind of certainly within the Catholic kind of tradition and the Orthodox tradition and many liturgical traditions follow this model and and uh, the, some of the the applications are different, but even within Pentecostalism, and and particularly, I think, kind of uh, some aspects of the Charismatic movement, there would be a choice of this model. You wouldn't have necessarily a hierarchical defined structure, but you have the specially anointed people, and then you have the common people, and you have the emphasis on holiness and and intercession and sacrifice. You know whether that would be communion or the sacrifice of praise and prayer. You have. Have a lot of sense of preparation that we're either preparing for heaven or we're preparing for the big move to come. 
Uh, there are many churches that would adopt this kind of model, uh, but most churches are synagogues. Most churches are synagogues. And the reason this is so difficult is because the model itself is never meant for growth. The model is not even intended for growth. There was no intention in the synagogue that there was going to be growth. The model is meant for preservation. The model is meant for survival. The problem with a life raft is that it doesn't even work very well to include your children in it. And the huge challenge, and we wonder sometimes, like, I mean, I'm not offering an easy answer to how faith is passed on to generationally, but it is the crisis of Judaism. It is the number one crisis of, of what it means to be a Jew in the world today, is how does, how does being Jewish pass down to the generation? And the synagogue model has not served, even though... It was thought that that could happen. It has not served that transfer. And then for the church to adopt this as its model and believe that even that model will help us bring our children up, it's an isolated model. It's a defense-centered model in terms of kind of the the hostile culture outside of us. It, It is an inward model, and somehow that that is going to help us kind of keep our children in the faith. It is It is, to me... It's unworkable. It's, it's proven to, to leak severely. And yet so many churches, even though they might think, no, we have a mission in the world, but the actual model that they're following is a, a, a synagogue model. Okay, what am I suggesting about the church? Well, I'm suggesting some radical things. I'm suggesting that the New Testament church model... And again, I know that it can't be argued. There's no, there's no way to argue particularly. I mean, I know people try, but of the government of the church or, or its actual, what did the church service look like or how did they exactly meet? I mean, we only have the barest hints of kind of those, that, those forms or pictures. But, but here's what I would say about the, you know, what we can know. First of all, it is an expansion model. It is an expansion uh, and mission model. Whatever the church is, it is designed to, to be established where it doesn't exist before. It is designed to include those who have never heard before. Whatever the church is, and, and, and the reason I can be so adamant that the church is not a synagogue or a temple, the, you know, the argument can be made, well, they're all just kind of faces of one thing, you know, like they're all just God's people and they all just look the same. And, and that's how a lot of people read the Bible, that these are all just, you know, face different facets of the same thing. And that I would, I would absolutely vehemently argue is not true. That, that they're evolutionary, the models are evolutionary, they give way to one another, and they're exclusive one, of one another. And the, the reason I would say that the church model cannot be the same as the synagogue or the temple is that as the church emerges in the book of Acts, it is kicked out of both the temple and the synagogue. It cannot coexist with either of those models. It cannot remain within the temple, and it cannot be in the synagogue. It is expelled from both of those models. Whatever the church is, it does not coexist with those two things. Secondly, 
It's a place, yes, it's, it's not like the temple that it's a palace for God, and it's not like the, the synagogue that's just a place for believers. It's a gathering for the remnant and the faithful. The church is a place for God, for believers, and for what the book of Acts calls God-fearers, searching hearts. People who don't know, but they're interested. It's a place for all this to be mixed up and and be together, for God's presence to be there, for believers to be to be celebrating God's presence and mercy, and for searching hearts to be there. It's a, a unifying personal mar- marker, unlike the temple, which is a national unifying kind of symbol, and the synagogue, which is a local sin- symbol, we're still here. The church is a personal symbol of, there's a place for me in God's family. It's like totally uh, silly for someone in the vineyard to talk to any of you who are Anglican or other traditions about the meaning of communion. But, but you know, for Jesus and for the first century Jews, to eat with someone, that, that meant that you included them in the circle of your family and friends. That's why it was such a huge division between Jews and Gentiles that a Jew wouldn't eat with a Gentile because because of their uncleanness, and therefore they wouldn't throw the circle around them of being family and friends together. And so that huge issue that existed to divide the church. But you have Jesus come along, and what does Luke 15 tells us? He welcomed sinners and ate with them. That's why he was hated by the Pharisees, that he threw the circle of family and friendship around prostitutes and tax collectors and sinful people, not who repented and were changing, That's what they were doing. And Jesus welcomed them and ate with them. That does put communion in a little different light. That the symbol of his sacrifice and mercy is this shared common meal where he's thrown the circle of his mercy and love and his care around our life. We know that's true, that this personal marker of there's a place for me at God's table, there's a place for me in God's family. That, that invitation, that access, that welcome, that opportunity. Okay, what else am I want to say about this? It's a culture of grace, not a culture of holiness. Or, I mean, again, I'm not trying to discount holiness and, you know, all this just so I could anticipate the arguments. I'm not trying to discount discipline. But the overall prevailing culture of the church is a culture of grace. You can see it being wrestled with in the letters. You can see this, the tension of how do we do this? How do we, you know, discipline people? How do we, you know, kind of exhort people to live godly, holy lives? But how do we do this in a context or a culture of grace? And it's, it's experience, unlike the temple with its sense of spiritual distance. You know, you, uh, I, I have the privilege, Paul's here, but I'm going to, be speaking in Chelmsford Cathedral, right, on next Saturday, some healing day. So I'm going to be speaking there. And, and you know, every time I'm in a cathedral, you know, the grand space, the, the awesome space, it, it's inspiring, but it's meant to communicate the, 
the otherness of God. You know, the the he's he's high and we're small. And, you know, I mean, it's it is even architecturally meant to kind of give you a sense of distance and and transcendence and. And so it's not like that, and the church model is not an experience of spiritual discipline. I think it is an experience of spiritual discovery for believer and for the searching person. We discover our gifts. We grow in, in our maturity and character, but it's also a place of spiritual discovery for those who don't know Christ. It's also centered on salvation, sharing, celebrating salvation. We're not looking forward, we're not preparing so much as in the temple to we're not we're not preserved just trying to preserve what's been taken away and, and the remnant that remains were we're centered on sharing and celebrating the salvation that has come to us in Christ. The church is served by a team of ministries who are spirit-filled and spirit-gifted. Again, there's authority. There can even be hierarchy. But, but the, the church is not served by an individual teacher. It's not served simply by a, a mediary or a, a different levels of you know, intermediaries between us and God. It's served, served by a, a team of people. The thing that I love about the fact that... And, and not everyone agrees with me on this point either, but there's no gift of evangelism. It's not in any of the lists. There is a ministry of an evangelist in Ephesians 4, you know, those five kind of fathering, mothering ministries that are meant to equip the saints for the work of service. Evangelist is in that list, but is not in any list about gifts. Now, I, don't, I wouldn't even argue that those are exclusive lists, that, that that's all the gifts that there are. But you tell me, the Apostle Paul, who wrote those lists, who is the most outward evangelistic leader to kind of emerge you know, in the pages of Scripture, and you tell me that if there was a gift of evangelism, he wouldn't have talked about it? I find that hard to believe. And so what's the answer? Is there no gift of evangelism? The answer is, every gift is needed to do evangelism. Every gift is needed. They all have to be marshaled towards that aim. That's why Paul will say to Timothy, his beloved son, do the hard work of an evangelist. Not just use your gift, but use the gifts that God has given you in an outward evangelistic way. That's the key. So there's a team... The team of ministries, gifted people serving together that lead the church. And then lastly, the primary end goal, I think, of the church is proclamation. Is the sharing of this personal witness, confession of who Christ is to us with the world. It's proclamation. Choosing our model, you know, like how do we actually decide that we want to be something different? I mean, there there are a number of layers of transition. There are a number of places where where a model begins to shape what we do. You know, I told you about that list of all those different things that are evangelistic that we could do, and the Lord said, just do something. 
by far the most effective thing that we have done is try to make the life of the church itself engaged with people who are in process. And that's not an easy thing to do, but like I described it, being a family with our doors always open and extra places always set at the table, to be a a people that have God-fearers, searching hearts, people who are questioning, people who are reaching, to have them part of who we are in process. It is that dynamic that has been most fruitful and effective. So that means that even the worship life and the way that we train and serve and all of those things is inclusive and not exclusive of people who are trying to figure things out. That's a, a dynamic that is maybe not as as so easy, but is incredibly effective. Incredibly effective. I remember having conversations with John Wimber uh, before John passed away. He came to our church. We had already implemented some of the things that we were doing, and and John was curious and not all that pleased, uh, honestly, with me, and, and kept asking me, now, David, tell me again, why is it that you want all of these non Christians in your church? Like, in worship on the weekend, because we have lots of them. And, and I said, I said, John, the things that God has given us in the vineyard, you know, I kind of listed them out, you know, contemporary worship, you know, vineyard worship, uh, you know, we're, it's like the Eagles got saved, you know, it's like the Southern California soft rock of, you know, we're in Southern, I mean, it's just like, it's so culturally accessible. It was never, like, meant as a gift from God for... I mean, I hope that, that vineyard worship was a blessing to anyone, and it's, you know... But there's so many now streams of worship that bless all of us. But, but the idea of contemporary, culturally relevant worship, that's really for the church to feel better about itself so we don't feel so embarrassed that people like Lady Gaga or something, and we can say, well, we got kind of hip worship. Is, that, is it really for us? I don't think so. I think it's, it's to speak to others. The, you know, the way that we were in the vineyard or are in the vineyard, very casual, very kind of lower the borders of, of how people actually approach church, you know, all of those kind of dynamics, being more conversational in our ministry style, believing that God is powerful, but that he's powerful through us, being natural about it, naturally supernatural. All those things, to me, had one kind of target in mind, and that's people that don't know him. It wasn't simply for the renewal of people who do, so we'd have a fresh way to do it. It was actually connect with people who don't know. So worship, for instance, the most powerful, I think, one of the most powerful witnesses that we have, that God is actually present in our worship, that His Spirit is present. We all know it. You know, we have, you know, our crusty selves we bring to worship. Maybe we're even leading worship or, or we're leading the service and worship starts to happen and we feel that softness. We feel that melting come of all of the crust and the crud and and because God's presence is engaging with us. That that wouldn't touch someone who didn't know? I mean, my favorite thing in our midst is to see people who are just hardcore, like never connected to God. When would you ever be, for instance, in a room full of people singing... It does does happen at concerts, particularly amongst baby boomers when they go see the boss or they go see somebody. You know, they'll all sing the songs, you know, you two, everybody's singing the songs and having this kind of experience. But, But when are you in a room full of people that are singing where 
where there's something more than just kind of the feelings of that song created in you, where God might actually be present. It just doesn't happen in people's lives. And when it does happen, man, it's just my favorite story about this. And I, you know, I, I just, it's, I've witnessed it in so many different ways with so many people, but this was so extreme. This guy comes to our church. Uh, he's a gang member, motorcycle gang, criminal gang guy. And he comes, gets saved, and, and he becomes one of our, just our most ardent evangelists. And he's always dragging like people off the streets. He's got prostitutes and drug addicts with him. He's got a little cloud of people always. He's dragging into church. And, and then one day he says, I'm going to bring my baby brother to church next week, what I, which I didn't think was particularly like news because he was always bringing people. But he was very excited about bringing his brother. And I said, why are you so excited? And he said, well, my baby brother, you know, when I left that gang to follow Jesus, he, he stayed in the gang. And if I was this bad, my brother's a hundred times worse than me. And he's done something so terrible that his own gang wants to kill him. They put a contract on his life and he's trying to hide out. And he came to me and said, could I hide out with you? And I said, you can under one condition. You got to go to church with me. And he said, my brother's never, ever been in church. And I thought, I don't know if coercion evangelism works, but we're going to find out. You know, like manipulation evangelism, coercion, and maybe it works. So, so the next Sunday, he introduces me to his baby brother, who was about 6'6 six, six and 350, and the biggest, baddest hunk of humanity I've ever laid eyes on. And, and he had his all tats and, you know, prison tats and his gang colors and and he introduces him to me and the guy i say hi i'm david and he grunts at me really he wouldn't speak just grunted at me i thought this will be so interesting because this he could be hiding out with his brother for a while and his brother's going to bring him to church every week what what will this be like that very first sunday you know so he's there and we serve we have a starbucks in our church you know like literally a starbucks in our church and again it's not because we want our members to have nice coffee. It's because we want our visitors to feel familiar and comfortable. So he's drinking his cup of Starbucks coffee, and, and he's sitting on the chairs, and we turn the lights down during worship so people can either sit there and watch or they can stand and raise their hands, do whatever they want, but it's not like they're on the spotlight and we it's kind of got tables and chairs it's more of a nightclub feel and 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 he's sitting in the back hunched over with his coffee trying to endure this horrible thing and worship starts and 15 minutes into it i look over at him and he's jiggling he's on his chair shaking i think man maybe drug withdrawal i wasn't quite sure what was happening with him but he's jiggling on his chair hunched over his coffee and soon as the worship ends and lights come up a little bit, we take a break so people can get something if they want it, and, and then we come back together. He shoots out the door. I got a few minutes. I shoot out the door after him. I catch up with him in the parking lot lighting a cigarette. He's lighting a cigarette, not me. And, and, uh, and I, I get around in front of him to stop him, and I, his tears streaming down his face, streaming down his face. I said to him, what's happening with you, man? He says, I don't know. He said, but for the first time in my life, I feel like I'm in the presence of goodness. What a testimony of worship. I've never heard a better description of worship. For the first time in my life, I feel like I'm in the presence of goodness. It broke his heart. I, I, I tell you, the, one, the most common thing that happens to people who are utterly, utterly lost, 
utterly disconnected from church and religion, maybe never had any kind of spiritual experience before, what happens to them is they come in, and our worship isn't like lights out. It isn't, you know, off the charts, skillful. It's great, but it's just the eagles got saved. And the, the common experience is people sit there and they cry. And they don't know why they're crying. And they come back and they cry again. And they cry again after that. And somewhere on that journey of, I don't know what's happened to me, but there's something going on that somehow it gets clear and they reach out for Jesus and he's not far away from them. And they, they, they meet its encounter, its community, its engagement, and it really requires the the desiring that that would take place. And, and I can't predict how that happens in every situation. You know, it depends on who you are, your, you know, what's, what's your reach kind of distance-wise and who, who's around. But, but that, that spirit of, that's contrary to the rabble, that spirit, that same spirit that was on Moses, we want to get to the promised land. That, that same spirit that would say that, you know, we want this for others as well as for us. That if that is on us and, and in us, then what's going to take place is a genuine kind of experience of church that is, that is always, you know, got one hand reaching for God and another hand reaching for somebody else. That that's what it's going to look like. And that's going to be different than the kind of neatness and discipline of the synagogue model. It's going to be different than the structure and the grandeur of the temple model. It's going to be messier. It's going to be more organic. It's going to be more mixed up. It's going to be more in process. All of those things are going to be true about it. For us, the the mess is real. I mean, a third of our church comes out of hardcore addiction. Any given weekend, there'll be a lot of active users in our congregation. A lot of people are high. And what do you do with that? Do you say, come back when you're sober? Or do you say, like we say to the mentally ill people, who the homeless people that are part of our church, we say, until you know, we can bring more power and healing to your situation, we're going to walk together as friends. I've seen people come sit on the front row week after week, month after month, high, just challenging me to throw them out. I won't do it. And then one day, things will shift, and they'll decide to get in one of our recovery groups, and they'll decide to move forward, and and God will meet them in power, and things will change radically for their life. But that patience, kindness, tolerance that leads to repentance, that, you know, how do we do do that in an active way? How do we have that opportunity where that is ongoing, that it's just part of who we are, that we're cooperating with what God is working in people's lives. And there's content at the center of it. There's proclamation of what's true that is communicated. We're not just trying to be a friendly place for people to have coffee and have a muffin together. We're trying to proclaim Jesus Christ and all of his glory. But we're doing that in a way that, you know, acknowledges that people are in process and that we want to be connected and I think that it is key in all of this that, that and I, how do I say it, that that sense of culture of grace, 
when the scripture encourages us to to embrace humility and and be willing to associate people of low with low position in life that the poor have to fit into this that they have to fit into this model that there has to be a place for the poor and 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 obviously i think every church wants to have an effective ministry to the poor i just wish a whole lot of more churches were churches of the poor as well that they were part of who we are not just kind of an act of our charity but they're part of who we are and not in every case we want everybody to grow up we want things to change and get better for them but but that that willingness to be deeply associated with people who are broken people who are profoundly needy I had a conversation with a woman just well she sent me an email I had a long conversation with her and then she sent me an email she she was raped by her father from the age of 5 to 14 every night i can't even imagine she they were religious in a nominal way and she came to conclude through the horror of her experience which she tolerated uh increasingly over the years because of her father's threat to do it to her younger sisters that she decided to take it so that they wouldn't have to and then she concluded during those years that god couldn't exist there's no possible way that god could exist and for her to experience what she was experiencing she managed to i forget exactly how it came to an end at 14 i have a feeling it had to do do you remember nancy his arrest um but it came to an end when she was 14 she survived she married a guy a very nice guy she had her own family and then one day a friend of hers who goes to our church just texted her text messaged her out of the blue and said hey i'm thinking about you and i'm praying for you and that provoked something she was mad she thought you're praying for me she it made her mad and then she wondered why why is this making me mad and in the process of her life what happened was she basically came to know that that god hadn't abandoned her that in fact that it wasn't that he had kind of abandoned her that he that her father had choices but he hadn't abandoned her and over a period of time she gave her heart to the lord and experienced tremendous grace and freedom and her husband this guy nice guy and patient guy obviously loved her had no church background no experience didn't have and couldn't imagine that this would be meaningful to him at all in fact when she started coming to church she would just slip away on sunday and then come back and finally he asked her where are you going and she said well i've been going to this church called the vineyard and he said to her well, i'd like to go she thought you're kidding You want to go? I said, "Yeah, I want to I want to go." He started coming with her. He gives his life to the Lord. The uh, How does this happen? You know, there are children or teenagers she re- recognized recently that that she couldn't hug, she stopped hugging them when they were 5. She couldn't touch them when they were starting when they were 5 years old. I wonder why. She couldn't touch them starting when they were 5. Just a few weeks ago, we were talking about healing and things and 
she asks God to help her. And, and for the first time in her son's life, he's how old? 13? She hugged him. He said, you've never done that. He, knew, he, he didn't know why. He just knew that she never had. You know, it's just like, how do we strategize or program for that? Or You don't. You have an environment where, where someone who's shattered can come and be safe and, and welcome and, and have the time and the pay. I don't know. I, I don't have all the programmatic answers. I just know that the attitude of the heart, we have this incredibly diverse situation. We live in a diverse community and we reflect our community. We're about 35 or 40 percent Hispanic. We're about 10 to 15 percent African American. We're a non-majority white. And and I'm a white guy. I mean, I, I you know part Native American, but that's so far back that that's not noticeable. And and I'm a white guy, and 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 I am an educated person, and I talk. I don't talk down to anybody. And and people who can barely understand you know English that speak primarily Spanish will come and throw their arms around me and say they met Jesus and how grateful they are father for your mass you do and that's what they'll say and and I'm and I just how does I don't have a clue other than the welcome is genuine the interest is genuine the priority is genuine I, I don't have a clue how God does that other than he said to me you take one step towards lost people and I'll meet you there I'll meet you there that's what I believe in uh, and I believe in in terms of discipline I believe in the Holy Spirit I believe that God engages with our life I, I, I do believe in calling people to even as I'm attempting with respecting you as leaders and what your influence I'm I'm trying to influence you to reach for more to reach for more but ultimately it's God's spirit that has to do it and in terms of discipline and our feeling like we got to get everybody shaped up in our in our little lifeboat and we got to get them shaped up and so that we can deliver to them heaven and they'll be shaped up and I, you know I'm writing tickets and I'm administering discipline and I just think I, I don't have any sense of that I'm too little honestly for my own church like like why aren't you like I will deal with predators I am rabid. If there are wolves in sheep's clothing, they're trying to take advantage of others, I will bite them. I will fight them, and I will drive them off. But if there are people that are too slow in their movement and progress towards holiness or maturity, I am not going to bite them. I'm going to try every other way I can, I can to help them grow up, but I am not going to crack the whip. I told this on the weekend, but... You know, this is a regular occurring thing because we track all kinds of people and they do all kinds of things. And sometimes they don't dress at all appropriately and it's hot in the desert. It's a hundred degrees, you know, for most of, of, you know, four or five months. And and people show up with too little clothes. And for some reason, that's not so much a problem with guys, which I think is really sexist and wrong. 
you know, like a guy in a wife-beating T-shirt, that creeps me out, you know, like they ought to dress, you know, but, but never is it guys that are pointed out that dress too little. It's always women, you know, and then I just, I, and so someone will say, well, gosh, you should get that person to put some clothes on, shouldn't you, pastor? Be the disciplinarian, you know, do your duty, be the rabbi here. And I'll say no, and they're so shocked. What do you mean, No. I said, no, you know, the first time I talk to them about how they're dressed, that will be the last thing that I get to say to them. They will feel rejected and pushed away by what they're wearing. And that, to me, is like, are you kidding me? We're going to push people away based on what they're wearing? But then the person will say, and I legitimately identify with them, but I have children, I have my daughter with me, and that woman there, you know, she's a bad example, and I appreciate that. But then I say, you know, what about that woman who's sitting there? Maybe she has a grandma somewhere praying for her, right? Praying, God, help my granddaughter. She's lost and confused. She doesn't know who she is or what she's doing. Is there a group of your people that you could connect her with that might influence her life in a different way, that might help her find you? I bet there's a grandma praying for her, and we get to be that people. We get to be that people. Maybe some of us have children that want, don't we just long as there's a church somewhere? Our kids got addicted to drugs. And think, is there a church somewhere where they would actually feel like welcome and drawn into kind of recovery and a change and a return? Isn't, I mean, we long for that. We long that that would be the case. Why don't we do it? Why don't we be that? You know, that's the interesting thing about about the way it works in the kingdom of God. It's like, if you focus on doing it for others, it seems like then you get what's for you in a different way. You know, it's like, it's like that joke about heaven and the long spoons, you know, that if you try to feed yourself with a long spoon, you'll never get anything in your mouth. But if you feed the person across from you, then they could do it for you. It's, it's the kingdom stuff. And maybe if we did it for the least of these than our least that we care so much about, then, then God's going to touch and reach them. Yeah. I probably not a, I've probably overstayed so we can't ask questions. Anybody want to ask something before we wrap up for lunch? I want to pray for us as well, but does anybody have a thought or a question? Yes. How, how do you get the people who are coming in from outside the church and help integrate them into the family so they feel part of it? Um, interestingly, we don't use a very... Um, uh, what's the right word? We, we don't use a very shepherding approach. The thing that you discover, particularly with people dealing with addiction, is one of the principal problems that they have is that they do not take responsibility for themselves. And so in a way, and I'm, again, I'm saying a lot of hard things, but in a way, the way the church works sometimes is codependent. It, you know, like, I'll take responsibility for you, for your growth, for your change, for that kind of thing. And, and particularly if you work with people who are especially broken, you think that would be even more necessary, and it's actually destructive. And so what has to happen in our church, for instance, our view is we open the door, we set the table, we put a a smorgasbord out, you have to eat and come. 
You have to take initiative for yourself. That that initiative is so central. So we are constantly opening doors for people, constantly inviting, constantly saying, here's, you know, I mean, we have a hundred different ministries, many of them focused towards brokenness. But we're not going to grab you and twist your arm and carry you there. We're going to constantly try to empower your ability to choose and take initiative for yourself. We have a motto in our church that we make people shout. And it's a motto that basically defines what we expect of people. And it goes like this. If we sign, no, it, you sign up. That's this idea of you take initiative and say, I'm going to do that, and then you show up. So I'll say to people, we have this motto, and if we sign up and then everybody shouts, we show up. We follow through on our own initiative. That's what we're trying to equip people with. You take initiative and you follow through with that initiative. And if the more broken you are, the more necessary this fundamental thing is. And so we wouldn't be a great example of, wow, we just grab every person and we enfold them and we get them right down, we sit them down, and and it doesn't happen like that at all. And particularly for people who are approaching God for the first time coming into church, they want anonymity, and this is our experience anyway, they want anonymity, they want want space so that they can move forward at their own pace. There's all sorts of things that are necessary in this welcoming environment that are not overly aggressive. They're simply, again, an attitude and a commitment and a posture of providing what would be helpful to those who would take initiative. I know it's a long answer to that question. All right? Maybe when we start after lunch, we can start with questions if there are any. Uh, But we're going to break for lunch now. We're going to pray. Would you stand up with me as we pray together? Would you put a gentle hand on someone near to you? Let's pray for one another. Uh, as we go to lunch. Lord, we want to be leaders of your church. You've made us leaders of your church. You've gifted us, you've called us, you've put your spirit on us and You've led us to be leaders of your church. And I pray, God, that you would pour out your anointing or to do just that. We want to build the church you're committed to build. We want to prevail over the things that we're meant to prevail over. Lord, strengthen and empower and encourage us today. Lord, lift our heart. We reach for more together. We reach for more together. Come, Holy Spirit. Lord, we are part of that gifted team. Lord, you've given us gifts. All our gifts are not the same. Lord, all of our calling is not the same. Certainly all of our location is not the same. But we are part of that team that you've called to lead your church into the promised land, into the promised harvest field. Come, Lord. We bless one another in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.